We are still in Romans, uh, which I guess is uh, a given since we just started it. Uh, we will be here for quite some time, certainly through this uh, through uh, next year. Romans uh, 1 is where we're at. We are looking at Paul's opening in, uh, introduction, his uh, opening greetings, and we are focusing on how Paul is, even in these first seven verses, really opening the story and opening his main arguments and his foundation for why he is writing and the, the comfort and the, uh, the, the foundation on which he is going to proclaim the good news of the gospel, which is that, as the quote says on the first page of our worship folder, something has really and truly changed here and now. Uh, when the stone was rolled away, when Jesus rose in this world and walked around in glorified flesh, death had been defeated. That which had been undefeatable, undefeatable, uh, that had raged in our uh, world for so long had met its match, and that the Father had raised the Son because of the Son's work and love for the Father, and that now by the power of the Holy Spirit we can live a different existence now, which is often challenging given the fact that uh, this already not yet seems to indicate or give us the temptation to believe that sin and death still have absolute power. And so we rest, as Paul does, in the very powerful words that he gives us about the resurrection, about who Jesus is, and about the power of the gospel. And before we started this Roman series, we talked a little bit for a few weeks about godly leadership. And I want to point to how Paul is already exhibiting, of course, some of those characteristics of what we defined as godly leadership in his opening words. So we talked about how godly leadership comforts. It comes alongside in the midst of a broken world, and it talks about the goodness of God, like we just read in Psalm 4, that in the midst of trial and sorrow, there is a resolute work of God that is moving things forward, that he does listen, that he does bring peace, and that even when he walks us through the fire and the blood, it is for the working out of his good plan for eternity for the fullness of time. And so we comfort one another because we have a God who not only is sovereign, but one now, as we know in Christ, has suffered with us and for us. Paul also confronts. We talked about how last week, just using the word son of God in writing to Romans in the city of Rome was a direct confrontation uh, of Jesus the King with the Emperor of Rome, that you can't have two sons of God sitting on the throne at the same time, that there's going to be a confrontation with worldly power, with the worldly cultures and how they operate. There is going to be a confrontation with our old cultures as we understand the new culture of the kingdom of God and its work. And lastly, this morning, we're going to see how Paul calls God's people, first by modeling it himself as an apostle, into the work 
of being salt and light in this world. So let's put the text in front of us, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are again at peace with you. We pray that as we rest in that declaration, in that sure hope, that we would have the ears to hear, that the stress and the busyness, that the pressures that we feel would find their context and would be quieted now as we hear again from your word. Lord, we pray that whatever is said this morning in this sermon would be useful and Lord, whatever is not true, would those words quickly be forgotten? In Christ's name, amen. In this time uh, where we are in the midst of economic and pandemic and chaos, we do look to and desire from our leaders a measure of comfort, a measure of assurance that they are looking down the road, that they are going to have a plan to put us back together. We are looking for leaders to point a way forward. Some of us are wounded and angry and are comforted by the promise of dramatic change to blow the whole thing up and to start all over, to tear all of the structures down and to recreate them. We look for leaders who promise radical change and a willingness to upend the status quo, to bring dramatic change. Some are looking for the stability of those things that we have known, that we have understood to be reliable, that we've understood to be uh, right and good. And we look for leaders who will reaffirm the familiar, who will remind us and reassure us that the best days are days built on what was best about what's gone before. To comfort us in the familiar. The challenge is that particularly in our day and age, we don't have much trust for our leaders. Uh, we don't really trust that they will follow through with what they say 
or that what they say and we believe is really best for us. We know that at some point, if leaders only tell us what we want to hear, are they really leading us at all? And so we have this tension, this tension of being told what we want to hear because we want to be comforted. And then in the back of our minds and in our deepest souls, knowing that things will probably have to change and stay the same. And we need leaders who can lead us down the road that takes the reality of those two tensions and puts them into practice. But that requires us to trust another. And again, we know that we've come out to Oregon in no small part because there are fewer people to tell us what to do. We didn't come out because we liked to be led. We liked instead to lead ourselves. And so our culture, even more so here in Oregon and on the West Coast, wrestles with what good leadership is. It's not a part of the DNA of our communities and our culture. We are very independent. Paul here in this text affirms that we do need godly leadership. In verse 5, he talks about we, and this is more of the royal writing we, were appointed in grace to be apostles. These are probably saying two of the same things, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But first, Paul writes as an apostle. Servant leader to be sure, but nonetheless, he writes because he is a leader and because he has a role. And he is going to call us to obedience of faith, that there is an application, a lived-out implication of the gospel. And that Paul is going to speak from a position of leadership. And we know that Paul himself, his entire ministry will wrestle with whether or not people think he should be a leader. He's going to have to argue with the Galatians. He's going to have to reaffirm his credentials to the Corinthians. Wrestling with trustworthy leadership is not a new phenomenon. I do want us to take time to contemplate again what it means to pray for and to encourage and to sit with godly leadership. So let's take a look. First of all, verse 5, as we've already alluded, uh, grace and apostleship. Now, the way the grammar is here, the scholars tell us that it's actually a very humble way of saying that it's both a privilege to be an apostle it's a grace to be an apostle, not the grace to be an apostle, but that being an apostle is a part of God's grace to Paul. That the ability and calling to be one who is representing Christ and bringing the gospel into Rome and to the entire Gentile world as he is able to in the seasons of his life and the missionary journeys that Paul has, it is for Paul a grace. It is a God's blessing to be an apostle, and to be an apostle is God's grace for Paul personally and for us as his people. It is the 
privilege that Paul sees in being able to serve others. And we know that in our hearts, as we look at Scripture and as we desire in those best moments, it is sometimes easy to have authoritarian leadership. It is sometimes easier to have no leadership at all. But in our hearts, the, the, the comfort, the sureness of having servant leadership, servant leadership that is not unauthoritative, but comes from the position of Jesus in washing our feet, in walking alongside, in bearing our burdens, in weeping with those who weep, and at the same time pointing to the ways in which God's love and grace can bring transformation in our lives and to walk with us even when what we're called to do is walk through the fire, to lean into difficulty and suffering on behalf of the other or in our own dying to self and rising again. Paul's grace, Paul's apostleship, will both lavish us with unimagined comfort of a God who has come near and will never leave us or forsake us, and a God who will bring Abraham to an understanding that to follow him, he must realize that he has nothing that has come from any place other than the hand of God. And that to come to a realization that living with an open hand means even living with an open hand, the life of his son. That there is freedom. There is what it means to trust in a loving and gracious and infinite and powerful and creative God. Paul is uniquely called to be an apostle to all the nations. And even as we wrestle with or acknowledge that we're all called to be salt and light, that doesn't mean we're all called to have the same responsibility that Paul does or our missionaries do who go to places uh, around the world and spreading the gospel. The calling is not for all of us to be an apostle in the way that Paul is or to bear the burden and the weight and the joy and the grace of the apostolic calling or the missionary and evangelistic calling. But what Paul tells us is true for all of us is that we are to live out of an obedience of faith. A believing faith would be another translation as we move through verse 5. So we have this wonderful leadership and servanthood of Paul the humility that recognizes that leadership is a gift of God and a grace poured out both in Paul's life, but also for the church. And what is he called to do? What is he called to lead? How is he called to direct God's people? It's in unpacking what it means to be obedient in faith. Again, coming out of the Reformation, it is... Not surprising that Luther struggled with what obedience and meant, because he came from a time in which obedience to the church and its teachings meant crawling up stairs on your knees. Uh, it meant all manner of things that were supposed to somehow help us earn our salvation. And there was a time in which the church profoundly perverted what it meant 
to be obedient unto faith or be obedient in the faith or to have an active believing faith without a doubt. And so it's not a surprise that Luther had difficulty with the book of James and wondered if it should even be in scripture because what James does is echo and unpack exactly what Paul says here in verse 5. That our faith is shown and brought out in the obedient following of Christ and his calling in our lives. We may not all be called to be apostles. We may not all be called to live lives uh, across cultures around the world, but we are all called to be obedient in our faith for the sake of his name. Interestingly enough, Jesus's name is honored in and through the world when his people physically act out the faith. When the salt and light and care for one another within our families, within our marriages, within our communities, standing with those who have no voice, standing with those who are broken and fearful, standing with those who need a cold glass of water, and caring for and providing shelter, is how Jesus' name is praised in and through this world. It's no less than the evangelistic message. It's no less than proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to live eternal life, to be at rest with God, and to be a part of the resurrection in his kingdom. But it is the acting out of the implications of the resurrection, the lordship of Christ. As we've talked in some of the earlier sermons, what would Jesus have me do? There is an activeness to the faith, a faith secured in the actions of God. So what would I encourage us to do as we contemplate verse 5? First, where do you need to practice obedience of faith? Ask yourself that question. Where believing the best about another means taking the chance to speak truth and love, to understand what it means to risk friendship in love for the other. Again, we are called to comfort. We are called to confront. We're called to bring others along with us in our friendships. Friendships stay shallow if there never is an opportunity to challenge and encourage one another in who we are in Christ. Marriages are less and less based on who God is making us if we find ourselves avoiding the difficult conversations of sanctification in our marriage what it means to die to self, what it means to care for the other, what it means to get to those things which are 
deeper. I was talking to a young couple uh, this week as they were preparing for marriage and remembering, uh, although I'm only 28 years down the road in my marriage with artists, and there are many on this uh, Zoom meeting who are farther down the road than artists and I, there are ways in which the conflicts in our marriage when we were younger were somewhat easier to get through because at that point we were dealing with some of the surface sins. And now there are ways in which 28 years in, we may have fewer conflicts, but they seem to wrench more at the deepest things I love and find security in. Because now we're getting down to the meat of what makes ECEC apart from Jesus. That in a good sense, some of our conflicts as my wife points me to Jesus and my need for Jesus in my life. They are deeper and more profound than they've ever been before. Harder to let go because they are things which define me apart from Christ. It is active faith in love. It is faithful obedience that my wife will not let me simply stay in the place that she found me because my savior does not want me to stay in the place where he found me. He knows where I was meant to live. He knows the freedom I was meant to have. Obedience in faith is calling one another as Paul does throughout his works in the church to encourage people. This means of course, that we are called to listen. We're called to ask questions. We're called to put ourselves in the shoes of the other. We've talked about this before, but as we conclude this sermon, think about the implications of the incarnation. As we go through a time of social unrest again, when unrest, not rust, uh, when we find ourselves more divided as a society and a culture than we have ever been aware of over many, many decades and years, we are called to, in this moment, in obedience of faith, to understand the other. That doesn't mean the other is going to be right. But if we do not understand them, we won't respond in obedience of faith in the way that Jesus responds. What do I mean? Jesus had to trust that the incarnation and suffering, including the night in Gethsemane, the false trial, the crucifixion, his death, his feeling of the absence of God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of those steps, all of those components of what it meant for Jesus to experience, what the psalmist experienced when he says, where are you, Lord? I cannot hear you. Have you left me? Have you forsaken me? Jesus had never experienced that until he put himself in our shoes and in our flesh without sin, yet he understood. And there is a way in which Hebrews then tells us he is better able to pray for us. He's a better high priest.
it's easy to be horrified, to be disgusted with the violence and the rioting. It isn't the way we would want to respond to any circumstances. But what would it look like to put ourselves in the shoes of saying, what would it take for me to get to a point of exhaustion and frustration and anger to be that self-destructive, to be that violent? Because again, if you think you're not capable of it, you haven't read the Bible. But knowing that I could be capable of it, what would it take me to be that violent? to be that self-destructive. It's interesting, again, we see just in our community across the street from the Brownleys, there's some sort of frustration between neighbors. One neighbor put up a sign that says all kinds of horrible things with an arrow pointing at the other person's house. We are capable. The question is, what would it take to get me to a place where I would put a sign up in my yard pointing next door? How many times would that dog have to bark? How many times would I have to be frustrated? But some of us wrestle with how what seems to be protectionism, consciously or unconsciously, a lack of care for those who are coming from dangerous places around the world, seeking shelter and refuge in the United States. Perhaps it is uh, wrestling with what it means to uh, embrace uh, what we would see, some of us would see as uh, protectionist views, views that enshrine certain kinds of institutional racism. Have you put yourself in the shoes of someone fearing the kind of change because their own lives are insecure enough that imagining more people in the country, imagining that the little bit of advantage that they may have would be taken away, feeling like they never had an advantage and that others are now being put ahead of them. Can we put ourselves in the shoes of those who do see the change in a culture, the transformation from one dominant culture and one people group to a more diverse group as unnerving. What would it take to make me afraid of the other? What would it make me, what would it take for me to be afraid of change and that people would come in and take my stuff and redistribute it to others who perhaps I think haven't earned it or don't deserve it? Can I put myself in the place of those who are criticizing the rioters in the street. The question isn't whether we're supposed to only identify with one group or put ourselves in the shoes of one particular political bent or cultural concern, but knowing the mutual humanity, the obedience to faith, Jesus didn't just pick a side. He entered into, and we see this in the list of his disciples, zealots, tax collectors, the breadth of Jewish society, 
And then he took them into Samaria and the Decapolis to introduce them to what it's like to begin to minister to the Gentile. We've been called, we've been led. Paul will argue all of his letters that this is not an option. Whether it is in the language of the later chapters relating to the weaker or the stronger, one way or another, Paul in each one of his letters presses us to put ourselves in the shoes of the other, to understand it from their perspective, not simply from our own needs and concerns and view. The obedience becomes based on faith because, conclusion, letting go of the things that I think define me as an act of faith, believing that God is sufficient and that for me to enter the shoes of another, I will not lose who I am, I will not lose what is right or wrong, and that I can, in fact, find greater freedom in the grace of small a apostleship in the lives of those that I do not understand, that I have to imagine and listen and process so that I can hear them and treat them with the same love and care that Jesus treats me. Doesn't mean he endorses everything I've ever done or will do. It does mean that he loves me enough to listen, that he calls me to then become a listener. Obedience of faith comes down to something as simple as having the faith to believe that listening to the other, that feeling and pairing their burdens with mine, brings glory to God's name. That is how his name is praised. That is how his name is glorified in the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we thank you that you give us your spirit, that this is not an empty charge devoid of the power and the ability to see it done but that we rest in knowing that we are your hands and feet. We're, we are your ears. We do ask, Lord, that increasingly, as we head into this election season, that your people would listen and listen and listen and speak love and patience and grace into our relationships and into this culture. We ask, Lord, that that would happen so that your name would be glorified, so that the true king's power would be manifested in us.